This is Profiles in Risk. Hosted by Nick Lamparelli. Every week, we interview those who risk life, limb, fortunes, career, and reputation, and those who work behind the scenes who look to protect and enlighten us about risk. You can find the show notes and other insurance-related content at insnerds.com. That's I-N-S-N-E-R-D-S dot com. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Profiles in Risk. I am your host, Nick Lamparelli. On this episode, I am pleased to have a returning guest, Tony Stewart. Tony is author of several insurance books. He's the creator of the Insurance Bill of Rights, and he's Profiles in Risk's personal conduit to the world of life and health insurance, especially current events, which is what we're going to be discussing today. Tony, welcome back. Well, Nick, thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure to appear on this podcast again. I love the work that you guys are doing at InsNerds. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's early 2018, and you and I have been bouncing emails back and forth, and we thought it's probably a a good juncture now to talk about what we can look forward to in 2018 and what might actually happen with all of the changes that have occurred in 2017. So we're going to make this episode a kind of current events, what has happened, what might happen in 2018. And we both agreed we'd start with the Department of Labor fiduciary rule status and best interest standards. That is a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you brought that up, I was unaware of any of that. So I did a little bit of research and then saw that there was quite a bit of activity at the executive level where there have been executive rulings on that. And then it looks like it started to get unwound and there's a lot of confusion about that. So first off, let's talk about the DOL, fiduciary rule status, best interest standards. How did that even pop up in 2017? Well, it popped up is because it was due to be implemented in two stages. The first stage was actually implemented, but there was a second stage, the best interest contract exemption, which is the one that was going to have the most dramatic impact, was due to be implemented in 2017. At one point, they filed for a temporary delay of, I think it was six months, to further review the rule, which was basically, with the new administration, there was a lot of review of different regulations. So it got postponed, and then there postponing it further. What does the rule set out to do? So the rule sets out, it's actually very limited in its application right now, but it's what it could mean is the bigger interest. But right now it's limited to life insurance products. Well, there's a whole security side, but that's, I think, irrelevant to the audience, is it's limited to life insurance and annuity products that are inside of qualified plans. And basically what it says is that the consumer and the advisor should be on the same side and the advisor should be working in the consumer's best interest. The insurance industry has typically been the advisor has been an agent of the insurance company and they have not had a duty or a very high duty of care to the consumer. 
So the agent that's se- either selling the annuity or the life insurance basically represents the insurance company, not the consumer. So, so this specific, these set of rules or laws or standards, is, is it forcing the agent to come over to the consumer side? How does it split the legal responsibility of the agent to the carrier versus now the agent's responsibility to the consumer? Well, it does it through a couple different levels. One of the levels is that the companies are being required to set up a different type of compensation system. One of the issues on life insurance and annuity side has been very high commissions in the first year of a contract. So there's a huge incentive to place a new contract and with very minimum renewal or trail commissions. So there's not as much incentive to service and there's a continued incentive to roll over to new products to gain that high first year commission. Or churning. As, churning. As we, as we term. And, and we went over that in our prior conversation. I remember that from a while ago in my early days as an agent that that type of thing happens. Compensation level flattens out. It's probably more likely that there'll be less churning. Exactly. Uh, and there's and because the commissions is spread out over time, now it's in the agent's best interest to service the account so that they don't lose it to another agent. Do I have that part clear? That's 100% clear. And that means a better product for the client is because that first year compensation has to come from somewhere. So, of course, it's going to come from the client's premiums that they pay. Who is in opposition? There's got to be two sides to this. If someone's reviewing it or if things are being delayed, uh, there has to be another side to it. So am I right? Would the, in, is the insurance industry on the other side objecting to it? Is it, the, is it the agency system? Who is on the other side that potentially is objecting to the changes put forward? Because they seem pretty reasonable. Well, they are pretty reasonable. And, you know, I had actually first suggested them in the Insurance Bill of Rights, you know, because they were going to be limited to qualified plans. The opposition has changed is once it was announced that it was basically a done deal, the insurance industry had started to shift how they were going to do business and the products that they were going to offer to products that offered a level compensation. So that's a big reworking of products and distribution on the side of the insurance company. So you have two sides in the insurance industry. You have the insurance companies who've started to adapt and introduce new products that would be in compliance with the best interest contract exemption. And you have the insurance companies that have not done so, as well as different agent groups and brokerage operations and wholesale operations, because it is going to drastically change the industry And the insurance industry is some of the wiser companies are looking further down the road and seeing that this could be applied, especially if it works, well beyond life insurance and annuity products that are sold strictly in qualified plans. And the reason they're they're looking at that is this happened in the securities industry, you know, over the last couple of decades with a trend from high front end load mutual funds to eventually back end load mutual funds to eventually level load mutual funds to now where we are, where mostly low expense mutual funds or low expense exchange traded funds. So it's a lot of the insurance companies are looking at that as the natural 
ultimate outcome is people have access to more information on pricing. And, and so this DOL rule status, as you mentioned, I just want to make this clear, it's only for qualified plans. So Correct. There could still, like, the evolution should progress towards uh, traditional life and annuity products, but this, this rule does not affect that. No, and what's interesting, and we're going to talk about health insurance in a minute, is that it's touched off some other actions. First of all, just a quick update right now is the GOP, as, as we know right now, there's not a lot of bipartisanship happening in Washington, is the GOP in their proposed spending bill is they're basically just going to terminate the Labor Department fiduciary rule as part of their negotiations to fund the government. And what that has led to is the New York Department of Financial Services has announced that if that happens, they're going to have their own best interest standards, at least for annuities, and that most likely that they will uh, adapt it also to life insurance. So the insurance departments and the NEIC is also working, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners is also working on a uh, draft suitability model. So the cat has already left the bag or... <laughs> the train has left the station. Exactly. And as you were bringing that up, because my next question was going to be, well, if it's going to touch traditional annuity or life insurance products, uh, the states would probably have to get involved. So by, by hastening this via the tax code, it's probably going to speed up the, the, the states actually picking this up. So it's, it my, my guess would be that the, tr- the side effect of cut it, carving it out of the Department of Labor and the federal side of things is that it now allows the states to pick it up, which means fiduciary rules regarding life insurance and annuities are probably going to happen faster than expected. Exactly. Um, and we're, we're seeing that trend across the board is that the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, and part of it stems from is they were having a push-pull relationship with the federal government and the uh, federal insurance office, which I'm not sure if it's even really <laughs> exists or what it's doing, uh, but there was definitely a lot of... Um, uh, conflict. I'm trying to think of the yeah conflict with the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, who definitely want to keep their pole position as being in charge of all regulatory actions in the insurance world. They were losing some of their turf. Yeah, I, I always found the interplay between the federal office and the 50 state NAIC to be quite interesting because uh, the NAIC thoroughly enjoys. Uh, what they do, and I, and uh, yeah, you could sense that there was uh, some conflict with the federal government taking over some of their regulatory responsibilities. Uh, you know, it's it's. I think it's the um, kind of the trade off. There's, there's it's complicated, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think insurance did really has done really well on the regulation side of things. It wasn't really affected during two thousand seven, two thousand and eight, partially because. Uh, you have 50 state regulators watching over, and I think because they're smaller, they do they do a fairly good job. Um, and so we didn't have like insurance companies failing or crashing or anything like that. The, the AIG fiasco was actually not insurance related at all. It had like it was more of a 
financial product. But then on the other side of things, I always scratch my head. Like I, last year I had to spend many tens of thousands of dollars getting licensed in 50 States. Mm-hmm. And that was, and that was a complete drag. And now like I have to do things like uh, file surplus lines, tax forms and, some states I have to I have to print out an Excel spreadsheet, and others I can do it online. Uh, there's a trade-off. I'm frustrated, but I'm also appreciative of the work that they do. So, yeah, do you? Where do you think that that's going to go? I, I hate to go off on a tangent, but uh, you had you had mentioned the federal insurance office. What do they do? Do you think over time that the federal insurance office will get more power? I, I would think that there's going to be a trend to some of those things like uh, with licensing. I apologize. I don't know how to mute this. <laughs> oh. Okay, good. It's only ringing once. Uh, uh, so l- let me start again. Ready? Yeah. Do you think over time the federal insurance office will have more power? I think they will uh, eventually because I think there are some things where they could be very effective that the NIC has not been effective, uh, such as uniform licensing, uh, perhaps gathering of information. But I think that right now is a, the state system is very, very effective. And uh, in most states, the, the, the main issue with the state regulatory system is that some states are very weak as compared to other states. New York and California quite often lead the charge in terms of consumer um, protection. While other states, for example, California, their uh, investigators make up the third largest law enforcement department in California. Uh, Other states have two investigators on staff. So you have a little bit of a difference in um, the states and how they're willing to protect consumers and do business. And I think that's that there might be more of an equalization to fill in where some of the states are just not as effective. Okay. Makes sense. Let's transition over to health insurance uh, with a new administration. Uh, there's been a lot of drama <laughs> team to, to state it mildly um, with the affordable care act and everything that's going around with health insurance uh, it's a mess. It's uh, it's disappointing. Uh, I think there's a lot of confusion. I don't think I think there are very few people that actually really understand what's going on uh, with health insurance. I'm lucky to be talking to one of them right now. So uh, what what happened? What was carved out of the ACA? Uh, I know there were tax law changes as well that affected the ACA. So where do we stand with all of that? How did 2017 end? Well, 2017 ended with a lot of noise and not much changing. Uh, I I would like to start off with one statement uh, so everybody is clear because this comes up quite often. The Affordable Care Act is the same thing as Obamacare. Obamacare was a nickname given to it derisively at the time it was put into place, but there is no separate plan called Obamacare. And when the studies were done in terms of people repealing Obamacare is once they found that it would actually repeal the Affordable Care Act, that they were one and the same as public opinion dramatically changed. And that's what we saw with all the uh, 
public uprising against the various bills to repeal the Affordable Care Act as people figured out that repealing Obamacare would repeal their health insurance. So that kind of brings us up to what happened. There were some minor administrative actions. Um, they were expected to have a dramatic impact on enrollment. Um, the enrollment period for the Federal Health Insurance Exchange, which affects 39 states, only 11 states have their own private health insurance exchange. Well, I guess not private since they're states, but have state-run health insurance exchanges. They reduced that enrollment period in half. Um, they scheduled computer maintenance for about eight hours every Sunday of that six-hour, I mean, six-week enrollment period. They cut the outreach budget by 90% on a federal basis, and they consistently stated that Obamacare was failing. Uh, and what happened was, is about 500,000 fewer people signed up on the federal uh, health care exchange. So about 8.7 million people signed up this year still, in spite of all of that. Um, so last year it was about 9.2. The state exchanges haven't reported in yet because their open enrollment is still open. California kept the same enrollment uh, period. I think Colorado did, and most of the states uh, kept similar enrollment periods. So, you know, at the end, um, those actions didn't have much impact at all on enrollment at the end of the day. So what's 2018 look like? Um, do you feel as though there's, I, I still see in the news that there's a push to repeal or repeal mm -hmm. place. Um, I don't know if this is just uh, grandstanding or politics now and whether something like that is actually going to happen. So uh, quite a bit of people, even with the outreach down, quite a bit of people still enrolled my guess is that uh, that would still continue unless there are major changes. Are you expecting major changes? I, I expect some changes. Um, I think part of the bottom line is that insurance companies have been profitable for the most part over the last couple of years. The first few years were tough on insurance companies, but they have, as insurance companies are want to do, they have adapted and um, the majority of them that participate in the marketplace are profitable so they're as vested as anybody because it would be dramatic changes for them to have to change to a different system um something of note on the uh tax bill uh certain people noted that the obamacare had been repealed uh but what had happened is they did not repeal the individual mandate that people need to have health insurance. They just changed the mandate penalty to $0 from $690. So theoretically, at any point in time, the uh, individual mandate is still fully in place and, it, and the penalty could be raised to anybody's guess. Now, with the current Senate and House makeup, um, that's unlikely to happen. But if there is a change, in uh, which political party is running the House and Senate next year, you could see some changes happening and the individual mandates swing right back into place. Um, it doesn't impact people who, so 
if you didn't enroll for 2018, then, okay, I'm trying to remember this. Let me go back. So for coverage in 2017, filing taxes in 2018, the penalties will still apply. So for everybody who's getting ready to file their 2018 taxes, the IRS is still going to reject returns that don't have the health care question answered. Um, for the coverage year 2018, which is open enrollment that will be taking place November 2018, filing taxes in 2019, the penalty is also still going to apply. So in 2019, filing taxes in 2020 is going to be the first year the penalty won't apply. But by that time, we could have um, Democrats back running the House and Senate. And I know we don't want to get into a political conversation, but if that happens, all they have to do is just increase the mandate penalty back up to theoretically any level that they want to. Well, wasn't that an issue uh, to begin with? Was that the penalty was too low to be uh, meaningful? Do you think if they if if they brought it back, do you think it would be stiffer? I don't think so. I, I think that the individual mandate was probably the least popular part of the plan. I think what's more realistic is that especially as the Senate is going to be almost truly bipartisan with a 51-49 split between Democrats and Republicans, that we are going to see some stabilization acts. I think what's going to be more important is um, the uh, cost-sharing reduction payments is so they removed uh, the White House administration, decided to stop paying the cost-sharing reduction payments. What happened was that triggered higher um, uh, uh, credits. So that means that people who were getting uh, cost-sharing subsidies on the silver tier plans are actually now able to get, I think the numbers were, it was pretty high, it was well over 50%, could actually get almost free insurance after their tax credits, advanced premium tax credit, if they move to the bronze tier plan. So to some degree, it actually backfired, is there was a net loss to the federal government by stopping the cost-sharing subsidies because it triggered a higher uh, tax premium credit. Health health insurance seems so complicated now that I... I almost think if I had to go out and try to handle this myself, I wouldn't. I'd probably go to an agent. It, it almost seems like no matter where we go with insurance, uh, we always make it complicated enough that you need some kind of trusted advisor to provide mm-hmm. some guidance because you were, just, you were talking about switching from plan to plan in order for tax savings to kind of kick in and see which one was provided the best economical benefit. I have a feeling that the average listener to this podcast or just the average citizen probably wouldn't have the expertise to be able to figure that out on their own. Yeah. Well, I think the important takeaway for people is that there are some really good alternatives and that is always with any form of insurance is that it pays to become somewhat educated yourself and to always compare your options. Uh, and to compare existing coverage to not, um, although I've had the same auto insurance for quite a few years and don't follow, always follow my own advice, is that, you know, to review options every so often. 
Yeah, we, we have a lot fewer options when it comes to auto, except for carriers. Uh, I think the states see to that. Um, wanted to finish off our podcast with a little discussion about uh, the InsureTech Outlook mm-hmm. uh, for 2018. I, I love, in our conversation, you wrote, I, I know just enough to be dangerous because <laughs> I, I feel the same way. And in our pre-discussion before we started recording, you know, I, we talked about uh, different um, modes of technology, and I'm not a technologist, but I feel like when it comes to this particular sector, I don't need to be. I actually don't want to know the nitty-gritty details of the technology. I'm more, I, I'm, I come from this from the consumer perspective and thinking about, well, how would that impact me? How would I use that? How does that make my life easier? How does that make my life better? And so I don't want to know the technical underpinnings of it. I just want to know, does it, you know, can I check those boxes off? So um, from, from your perspective, uh, what's, what's 2018 hold from the tech area in terms of how it affects insurance? Well, I, I think uh, the major trend that we're going to see is a trend away from pure technology companies to insure tech companies that are starting to understand that they have to work with established either insurance industry experts or insurance companies. You have some high barriers in terms of regulatory requirements. You have high barriers in reserve requirements. And um, as much as technology companies like to talk about data and how much big data they have, is I don't think anything beats 100 to 150 years of practical experience that the insurance industry brings to bear itself, plus the, I guess let's call it the insane amount of money that insurance companies have as compared to any other industry. Yeah, well, when, when I get a technologist telling me how ripe insurance is for disruption, uh, I always casually remind them that State Farm has 80 to $85 billion in surplus. How do you disrupt a big, giant pile of money? This is not, <laughs> this is not the taxi industry where the, the asset is the taxi and the medallions. The asset in insurance is the surplus. And as State Farm has done so poorly over the last few years, they'd probably welcome a small tech company taking some of their business away from them. They'd probably do end up doing better. Um, that, that that's huge, right? That mm-hmm. something that we have pontificated on many times, the tech companies bring awesome technology mm-hmm. able, but the capital hurdles when it comes to insurance are just overwhelming. They can't, it's so difficult for them to get real insurance products to market. They ultimately have to sell into the insurance company themselves. And I think, I think you're a hundred percent correct. I think, um, that realization has taken hold. There is not going to be the typical disruption that we see. You, these tech companies have to partner with insurers. Exactly. And they have to change their business models. Like um, I know you guys write um, about Lemonade a lot, and I love reading about it because I, I think Lemonade is, you know, at least trying to uh, change some things. But if you look at, uh, I read a, uh, the NAIC, I can't remember what it was, but a report where they talked about their review with uh, Lemonade is Lemonade was originally going to be a peer-to-peer player is that they had to really effectively change their whole business model because 
the NAIC said, uh, no, we're, that's not going to happen in the insurance market. Is that, is that an, uh, an article that's on the web? You know, I have to find it. You know, it's, it's a minutes from um, a meeting. Uh, so I will find that and uh, send it to you. you. You may have to remind me, but... Um, uh, I'll remind you. I, w- I would like to get that on the show notes. I think that would be, uh, you know, we bashed Lemonade, but it, I'm not bashing their technology. Yeah. I'm not bashing their, uh, or I want them to succeed. I think yeah. um, my, you know, I've, I've considered Lemonade uh, for my daughter's uh, insurance. She lives out in California. Uh, I would buy, I'd probably buy them if they were available. Friends of mine that I've had conversations with are customers of Lemonade. So I have no problem with that. It's, it's more of their, their outsiders view coming in and, you know, bashing what I feel like is a career's worth of trying to help other people and making it seem like I'm some kind of greedy SOB uh, for wanting to uh, apply an exclusion correctly. So I, I have, I have no problem with that, but you know, like when they initially came out and they were like peer to peer, that was the first article I wrote on lemonade was like, that can't work. It just, it can't possibly work in the way that they're describing. And I just got an email today from a, a uh, reader of our blog who was writing, well, Lemonade has had nothing but underwriting losses. Mm-hmm. Where is the money coming from to provide the charitable giving? It's got to be venture money. It's got to be investor money that they're paying to, uh, as part of the charitable giving because on the underwriting side, they haven't made a sense. So I'm a fan. I want them to succeed. It's, it's other things. It's more the drama and the self-righteousness that I don't appreciate. But yeah, they're a traditional insurance company now, but they're digital. And they're going to have, if they wanted to, if they do things right, they will have a huge advantage over the traditional companies that are still having issues with legacy systems. Definitely, definitely. But I, I think it gets back to what you're doing is they're nibbling at a very small corner of the market with renter's insurance. Uh, that's not well. Disturbing. They're not just the renters' company. They are homeowners. They just haven't. Oh, they haven't started. They haven't. Uh, they haven't gotten much traction on that. Uh, and I think a lot of it has to do with uh, mortgage companies probably won't accept their paper because it doesn't have it doesn't have an A and best rating. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so they're they're running into the same problems that everyone else in the industry in the property casualty industry has run into over the many, last many decades. Same, <laughs> same exact issues, but uh, I, I, I do want them to succeed. Um, we also talked about, before we started recording, we started talking about blockchain. Yeah. It's a, I'm a big fan of that. I've written a couple of articles on that. Uh, what are you hearing? Well, I'm hearing, you know, I mean, it, <laughs> it's... It was a big word out of, um, I can't remember what the name of one of the big insure tech conferences at the end of the year. That was basically the main topic of conversation. I think it does hold a lot of promise because it could speed up certain parts of the insurance policy life cycle. For lack of a better word, it could help uh, resolve underwriting issues. For example, on the life insurance side, medical records could be easily received through a blockchain ledger um, there. It could help with uh, underwriting procedures. It could help with 
claims. It could help with policy management. One of the applications I heard was, you know, it could verify whether or not an insurance policies in place or not very quickly uh, instead of having to get the traditional proof of insurance uh, from the insurance company. So from that standpoint, proving that you have a specific insurance policy can be very easily verified through a blockchain. Um, I guess it's called a smart contract uh, transaction. Yeah. It, not, not only in real time, I, I find value in that over time, it's, uh, it, the blockchain itself contains a historical ledger. Mm-hmm. Not only can we verify whether you have auto insurance today, but over time we'll be able to figure out who your carrier was five years ago mm-hmm. and what the claims were on that particular policy. And I, I think that's incredibly valuable on the property casualty side because I'm thinking of uh, cases of fraud or cases of uh, especially product liability. Mm-hmm. Something goes wrong 20 years from now. It's very important to know, well, who, were, who was the insurer of that product when that product was sold? That's, that's critical. That, that ends up having to be uh, discovered through the legal process, which is mm-hmm. very expensive. And yeah. so I, I agree with, I think block, blockchain is the only technology that I've seen so far from everything that's happened in InsureTech, all the great things. Blockchain is the only one, blockchain is the only one, it could become a blockchain at some point. A blockchain <laughs> is the only one that, come, that I see that's truly quote unquote revolutionary, that could upset or um, drastically alter so much workflow and not like knock an insurance company out of business, but just across the board, paperwork, um, sharing of information, verification, accuracy, all of that. What, what do you say about that? Oh, a hundred percent. And I, some traditional insurance companies, um, I can't remember one, but one's a couple of the really big players have started their little blockchain innovation labs and doing some testing um, of some of the things, you know, the other big application of course is claims on, uh, some routine claims. Blockchain can very easily verify, um, certain claims, uh, especially when it's a cut and dried event. The, uh, I just looked this up. I, it had, uh, I had lost my attention span for a second, but there's an ins- a consortium of reinsurers and insurers that have gotten together to try to standardize the um, blockchain platform, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, B3I, I'll put that up on the show notes. So that's the insurance industry's attempt to try to corral the blockchain to make it something useful. And I, it, it may or may not be Ethereum-based. Um, I'll, I'll look that up, see if I can throw that in the show notes. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's, that's the biggest thing that I've seen on, on the tech side. Um, there anything else that you've seen that could be interesting in 2018 on the tech side, um, that where, um, either, either it's been, uh, discussed about over the years and it's finally coming to fruition or something new, uh, that we haven't heard of, uh, that might, might be interesting to our listeners. Well, I I think one thing that is going to uh, come is that some of these, uh, I guess, buying interfaces are going to come into play. And they'll not only help agents, 
to do a better job um, gathering information uh, because it'll be easier to complete that I could see it um, making an application a lot easier and user-friendly to help avoid uh, issues on the application because people just don't understand what is being asked. And from an agent standpoint, is at least on the life and health and annuity disability side, the applications are not standard. And they're very hard to complete, even from somebody who's been in the business for 30 years, uh, because they move questions around, they have little sub-questions floating in little bubbles, and, you know, that I, I see some of these beautiful interfaces, like, we'll just keep picking on Lemonade, uh, because, you know, that's somewhere where I think they've done a splendid job is just their interface is so smooth. And some of these insure tech companies, I think eventually the insurance companies are going to adapt them and it. Maybe hopefully fingers crossed, we'll do away with those crazy paper applications that are 30 pages long. If there are any insurers that are listening to this podcast or anyone that has control underwriters control of the application, please stop asking questions for information on things that you can retrieve yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, and essentially that's what Lemonade's doing, right? They, you pl plug in a bare level amount of information and using other sources, they can collect the necessary information that exists on the other side. They don't have to hassle uh, the user, right? I was, uh, I got a hold of the Accord flood application mm -hmm. and I look through it. And I'm like, first of all, it's a mess. Like, <laughs> you can't you can't expect someone even even if they had a pen, which I don't I don't suggest that any insurer use that. It should all be at least PDF form filling. But even if they had the ability to do that, uh, the amount of boxes and questions that they asked were just overwhelming, and things that the the user would never understand or know what to do. Um, so. Please, uh, please stop doing that. Uh, if if you're listening and you can, you can prevent that. Make it easier for your users to buy insurance. So, Tony, we're uh, we're at the end of the recording and the yeah. podcast. So I want to end this. Uh, it's, be, it's January. It's 2018. We looked at 2017. Uh, I want to ask you if you could have one thing. One thing, you can have one thing that's uh, for 2018. What would that one thing be? You, you're going to get it. It's one wish. What's that one thing? Um, I think reasonableness and compromise. Uh, that people need to remember that everybody, whether you're an insurance company, a consumer, an agent, is that the end goal for most people is always the same. And it's to have the right amount of insurance at the lowest possible price, you know, just the, with the best coverage available. That's, that's a better answer than I was expecting. So <laughs> I can't, I can't even top that with my wish. So my wish is for your wish to come true. Uh, Cause that was fantastic. So my guest this week has been Tony Stewart. Tony, uh, again, thanks so much for updating us and happy 2018. Yeah, thank you, Nick. It's, it's a pleasure. I, you know, I just 
really enjoy the work that you are doing there. I appreciate it. So again, thank you so much. <laughs>